So tonight <clears throat> I want to talk and hopefully we can have maybe some discussion throughout. We'll see. Um, <clears throat> I don't need to get through all my notes, but uh, you'd probably ben be benefit benefited if I do. Um, the title is called The Spirit at Work, a clever little title, mm -hmm. meaning that the spirit is working, but also means the spirit at your job. Um, what is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and people's jobs? That's, I don't know if that feels a bit discordant to you when people often speak about the Holy Spirit uh, or when people have notions of what the Holy Spirit is like. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is, comes off as a force, uh, an otherworldly or an alien force that kind of embraces into our ordinary experience and creates an ecstatic experience, maybe some warm feelings. Uh, it's also a very private emotion, a private experience. The Holy Spirit's talking to me or some kind of expression like that. Well, <clears throat> when we do think about the Holy Spirit, people really sever the Holy Spirit from ordinary experience. So to say the Holy Spirit and work seems discordant for most people. If you've been at Labrie for any time, a length of time, you'll know that this is not a view that we hold. Um, I believe that the Holy Spirit is often seen through this lens of, of called the sacred secular divide. So the sacred is the religious activities, prayer, worship, communion, uh, preaching, these kind of things. That's where the Holy Spirit might live. And then uh, secular, I'm not talking about atheistic or anything like that. It just means the ordinary experience. The older definition of secular means the ordinary experience of plumbing, of carpentry, uh, of buying and selling, uh, inventing. And not only is the sacred secular divided from one another, almost like a, a spirit versus matter kind of thing, is that the secular falls beneath and the sacred comes above. So the spirit would be something above ordinary experience and then you have the monotony of mundane. Um, now within this framework, you're gonna see work as something that's lower, a part of the lower realm. And I've seen a lot of people who talk to me and they think, oh, you know, you do Labrie work. I wish I was doing something, you know, meaningful like that. Like, I'm just a, a plumber or I'm just a bank teller or something like this. And they denigrate their work. They see it as something lower than. At best, they may think of their job as a vehicle for evangelism. You know, uh, at, I don't know if you saw the Big Kahuna. It's about the salesman where this young kid who really, instead of wanting to make the sell of the product, he really wants to sell the gospel. Mm -hmm. He wants to evangelize. Uh, he, he sees his work as, a, as an opportunity to evangelize. So some people will kind of justify themselves and saying, well, yes, I have to do this job because, you know, we live in a fallen world, but as long as I'm evangelizing, then I'm doing something worthwhile. Or some people don't feel so bad about their job and they try to justify it by saying, well, at least I make enough income to in, um, donate to religious 
uh, works. Um, I tie to the church or to parachurch, or parachurch organizations or something like Labrie, for instance. And it's almost, I have to do this dirty work. And then here's the, here's the money that kind of washes, that kind of, you know, I have some nice things and here's some money that I give up in order to kind of justify my job or purify my job, as it were. Is this familiar to anyone? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I remember working at this company, ESL, and this other teacher said, oh, uh, I won't say the woman's name. He, he, said, he said, I think that she's just trying to establish the kingdom of God. She's just hiring people to establish the kingdom of God. And I thought that was a really odd phrase coming from this guy who I didn't really know. And <coughs> he knew I was a Christian, but I got hired. Um, I had a lot of private ESL experience, but I hadn't had uh, school experience of teaching ESL. Uh, I love teaching. It fit well. But she hired me because she saw that I graduated from seminary, not because I had skills in ESL. I ended up doing well. But she was trying to use her platform in order to try to use it for evangelism or trying to set up Christians and so that they might be an influence to these international students. I find this uh, deeply unbiblical. This is deeply unbiblical. The Spirit is about personal renewal, about conversion, but that personal renewal is to be oriented outward um, toward creational renewal or cultural renewal. So there's personal renewal in order that it might go and become cultural renewal. Uh, conversion so that I might be good at the work that I do. So instead of dividing the world between spirit and matter, the, the, the dualism that the Bible creates is actually between holy and sinful. And so no matter what you do, you can do it sinfully or you can do it righteously. Mm -hmm. if you can be a plumber that is doing holy work or you can be a plumber who is doing sinful work. It's hard for us to sometimes imagine that. We have to rework our imagination around because sometimes we make hierarchies with these. So what I want to do is I just want to give a, an overview, a biblical reflection on how the Spirit relates to personal renewal and cultural renewal. This may be familiar to some. It may not be familiar to others. It will be important for us to do. And I hope by the end of that biblical ref reflection, you will see how intimately tied the Holy Spirit is to the material life, not just the immaterial, which the Holy Spirit is a part of, but also the material and then turn to some implications for what the biblical reflections means for work. So the first is the biblical reflection. And I want to do the standard creation, fall, redemption. Now, this is something that you may have heard of before, but it is very, very profound to have that structure. If you've become inoculated to it, uh, it's, it's, that's too bad because it's, it's actually a very, very important layered way of seeing life as creation, fall, redemption. It's not just a system of, of analyzing all reality. It's also a narrative, a beginning, a middle, and an end. But it's not even just narrative. It's also um, the reality of history. The Bible is making a claim of history, that there's, this is how it was in the beginning, this is how it became something other than, uh, and then this is how it's restored. 
if you don't have that, you're struggling with um, if what is is what ought. It's very difficult to get out of that. But if you have this understanding of creation, fall, redemption, it really helps you understand reality very differently. So I want to look at creation, fall, redemption in terms of the Spirit's work toward work. <clears throat> so first, uh, creation. The Spirit hovers in Genesis 1 verse 2. Uh, the Spirit is into, is into chaos management. Um, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now there is this word here, spirit, which if I pronounce it correctly, ruha, um, means breath or wind or spirit. So sometimes the Bible will speak of the breath of God or the wind of God. But here, the verb here is hover. Wind doesn't hover. Um, it's, it's, more, it's, a, it's a personal verb. So it's, it's, it's saying that the breath of God, the very the essence of God. So it's the spirit of God that is hovering over the waters. So at the very beginning, the first person that you see in the Bible is the spirit of God, hovering over the waters, bringing order. Uh, and in fact, starts with day one through day six and, and develops and develops creation to from good to very good. So the spirit is at work in developing the material universe and the immaterial part of the universe as well. Secondly, you have the spirit enlivens. Uh, you have these expressions of the spirit of God enlivening creation. Uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Psalm 33, verse 6. Or, in Psalm 104, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. Talking about animals. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So here the spirit is not being spoken of as something otherworldly. Is speaking of the Spirit as very worldly. Okay. And you also see the Spirit not only at work in, uh, around creation, but also within humanity. So the Spirit enlivens humanity. Uh, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So the Spirit of life. And the man became a living creature. In Job, the Spirit of God has made me. And the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So there's very much a sense that the Spirit is not only over the created order, but also over personal life. Uh, so that we are made in the image of God uh, is, is this profound statement that God says that uh, let us make um, humanity in our image. Um, but also you see that the Spirit who is not only at work in the person, but also at work in creation. And this is very important because the connection between the personal and the cultural is made there. The Spirit is the one who enlivens both. And not only does the Spirit enliven both, but that the Spirit um, is the one that guides the image toward creation. So when, when, I've spoken about this before, but when the Bible speaks of the image of God, it means two things. It, means, it can mean many things, but it means at least two things. One, that it means that we reflect God, the image of God. So we are not self-defining. We are 
in essence, prior to self-recognition, we are in relationship. We are in relationship to God. How can we understand ourselves? It begins by relationship. No one is autonomous. We're not cogs in the machine, biblically speaking. We are, um, we are imprinted by God to be in relationship to God. And this, and this is what the Spirit does. But the second thing is that we are to represent God in his character in the world. So not only do we reflect God made in his image, but that image is an image bearer. So God brought forth everything, shaped it into a place that um, was formed and filled, and then says, okay, humanity, it's yours. That's a very bizarre switch. Uh, we often think of the Adam and Eve story and, and just think how pleasant it is that they get to do all this kind of beautiful stuff. But why would God hand over the reins if he's the one that just went from good to very good? Uh, and you can also imagine that even, even with his foreknowledge that, okay, this is going to go badly. I can imagine leaving Samuel and Sarah Beth at home and saying, okay, we've, we've built this house. We saved up to buy this home. You know, Samuel, cook Sarah Beth and Mia. We'll be back in a couple hours. Uh, I can just imagine the house burning down. <laughs> so, so why is God handing over the reins? Well, it points to uh, this image bearing, this, in this imageness, that not only are we to reflect God in relationship, but we are to represent God in his character. So if we represent God in his character, then we are going to be in right relationship to his creation that God has us as stewards. So that's why he calls um, Adam and Eve to, uh, to tend to one another and to tend to the garden. So the personal plus creational equals cultural. Do you see that? <clears throat> and so they are to attend to God's purposes. Uh, it says that God said, um, basically, um, God created uh, humanity in his own image and bless them and said be fruitful multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth but their ability to steward would be guided by their looking to God if they look to God they will they will well represent him they will well represent his intentions <clears throat> And also Psalm 8, and this is important. I want you to put a little flag in your head, Psalm 8, because in Psalm 8, it's uh, where David writes this psalm. It's a poem, and it's a reaffirmation of humanity's place in the cosmos. That, okay, you've made humanity lower than God, but above all things. Why are you so mindful? Why, why are you giving us a special place? And if you reflect long about humanity on the earth, we have a lot of power. We are the number one uh, shaper of creation in many ways, for better or for worse. There's nothing more dynamic and more strong and powerful than the human being on earth. Yet God gives creation to be stewarded by humanity because as long as they look to God, then they will, they will be, they will participate in what God is doing in creation. That's um, that humanity gets the privilege of participating in what God is doing on the earth.
So God is, God is um, sustaining it. Uh, he's brought it forth and called us to participate in it. Uh, and the way that he does that, he says, okay, I, I'm producing all things to um, produce according to its own seed. Uh, he calls Adam and Eve to tend to the garden. Well, this might seem like a minutia, but what it means is that they were not created to um, not mess up a static atmosphere. The Garden of Eden is not static. It's dynamic. It's constantly producing. It needs human stewardship. It needs human stewardship. If it doesn't have human stewardship, it produces and does, um, it doesn't flourish. So they are to tend to one another, produce children, and to tend to the garden. As one poet, Chad Walsh, says, making the fullness of creation fuller. But you also see the Spirit of God at work in particular ways. Uh, the very first time that the Spirit is mentioned in the Bible is um, uh, of Bezalel, the son of Uri. Okay. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called my, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Okay, what, what is the Spirit to do? with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. So the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the Bible is anointing for craftsmanship. Is anointing for craftsmanship. Because it points to, to humanity's need to be in relationship to God, so that they might know how to develop, um, uh, to develop this dynamic creation, because creation has the seed of potential. Um, creation has all this potentiality. As we can see later, that we start in the garden and end in the garden city. That there is a whole development of culture, and humanity plays the key role in developing it. It's not as if God is doing this, uh, and the humanity is on the side but that the Spirit is moving people to be a part of this. So you can imagine, if you're a craftsman or imagine in the Garden of Eden, you're not just naked running around going, well, we don't have anything to do except to eat and sleep together. It's like there's actually a joy of work. The part of perfection is the joy of work. We often think of work as something hard, laborsome, toilsome. But in creation, um, in the Garden of Eden, work is one of the many delights that they have, just like eating. And we can still have delight in our work. Second, fall. <clears throat> this is where you see personal failure. And the personal failure happens where they distrust the Creator as having good purposes. Okay, we, no, we're going to go on it on our own. We can go on our own way. And so Adam and Eve distrust. Uh, they take something that looks pleasing and good, but is, um, it is false, and it's a sign of their distrust. And in fact, it could have been pleasing. It could have been beautiful. God had made it beautiful, but they weren't discerning. They were trusting the voice of the serpent over the trust, um, or trusting over the voice of God. And so they think, oh, okay, well, we are going to live in creation as we wish. But that leads to creational and cultural dysfunction. 
So personal renewal leads to cultural renewal, but personal failure leads to cultural dysfunction. The fall, quoting uh, Richard Tuning from his article called John Calvin's Impact on Business, the fall polluted work in two ways. First, the created order fell along with our first parents and thereafter resisted yielding its benefits without humanity struggling to gain its latent blessings. The created order now resisted yielding its potential. But second, work itself became associated with toil and sorrow. So what he's saying is that uh, with sin, uh, not only does work become toilsome and sorrowful, but also creation itself becomes something that we have to wrestle with in order to it for it to produce what it's supposed to produce. It's, it no longer works with us, it works against us. Or more precisely, we work against it. Okay. Now, work is toilsome, it's monotonous, it's hard, it's difficult. Um, I've, I've slammed my fist against the desk many times, uh, literally and figuratively. <clears throat> But the Christian has a reason to say, okay, work is not all but toil. The Christian can say, actually, originally it's good. It is a good thing. Even though I do not currently experience it as this, it is ultimately a good thing. But secondly is that there's frustration. So toil is what we experience in wrestling in our work with creation. But creation also experiences something, frustration. Uh, Paul writes in his letter to the Roman churches, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The basic essence here is that creation is frustrated. It groans because it has a bad landlord. We are bad landlords. We are not tending to it well. We're not stewarding it well. We're actually quite abusive to creation. Um, we don't have dominion, but we dominate, we exploit, we neglect. And creation is longing for humanity to be restored. It wants that personal renewal so that it itself will also experience liberation. Creation needs us to be liberated. That's the biblical story. Um, so we may see conversion alongside conservancy. conservancy. Uh, we can see conversion along conservancy. Um, personal <coughs> renewal also attending to the environment as an instance. They are not opposed to one another. Now, some people have said humanity is a virus. I've had many students that come and say, well, humanity is just a virus. It's better if humanity were humanity was obliterated. Now, this is always theoretical. It's rarely for someone uh, to obliterate the human species. Okay. But they see that there's an they, they see that there's a huge problem because humanity does such great damage. Uh, there's the movie Manufactured Landscapes. Uh, where it was a Canadian, it was American director of a Canadian photographer in China, <laughs> multicultural. But the photographer was in China taking a picture of the devastation in China. 
but it wasn't but the reason the pictures were of the devastation was that their devastation was so systematic it was beautiful it was beautiful systematic destruction and so you have all these mounds and mounds and mounds of coal you have their ability to like have all the people come out and disassemble their whole city and they're very systematic in their destruction and so it has this sense of beauty but very distorted and so this is the reality of the fall of the human image having so much power but not knowing where to put the power. I want to say, but humanity is not a virus because creation longs for our liberation. Creation is not better off without humanity. Creation is in need of humanity. Uh, I was thinking about this piano. <clears throat> uh, imagine this piano sitting there without any human touch. Okay? Just imagine it sits there with no human touch. Um, eventually it will go into disrepair. Eventually it will break down. No one's going to repair it. No one's going to build one. Uh, but if someone sits down at the piano, the piano is almost longing. You might want to call it the piano is longing to be played because that is what it's not only what it's made for, but it is evidenced of the potentiality of creation. That it is, there's an unseen reality called music. And it really fills our senses. We love music. We can't get enough of music. We're all music lovers, um, whether we like good music or not. Uh, we won't decide which is good and what's not tonight. But this idea that this piano was not played, there would be something really lacking. Creation is longing to be played. Creation is longing to be stewarded. This is with art. This is with life itself. Um, and our work is a part of that great gift to creation. Yes, we are like a virus. We do so much destruction. But there's power to bring beauty, goodness, and truth to life. And so creation is longing for us to be a part of it. It needs us. That's the biblical witness. Another note is that in spite of sin and human rebellion, God does not abandon his creation. Uh, it's, uh, it's called a doctrine of common grace. Common grace is that, um, um, that in spite of sin and human rebellion, God still allows goodness and beauty and truth to exist even in its imperfect form but it can still emerge it still emerges uh, so God upholds his created and moral order and he restrains the effects of sin um, so that uh, <clears throat> and we can say that whether someone is a Christian or not whether someone believes in the spirit or not the, the Spirit is still at work in all of creation. This is a, a, a reformed doctrine called the Doctrine of Common Grace. Uh, John Calvin was really brought this to the fore and said that unbelievers can bring beauty. And he's saying if we deny the work of people who are not believers in Christ, then we are actually um, standing against the gifts of the Spirit, uh, which is a very interesting thought. But uh, 
And you can see this even in the Bible where it says unbelievers, uh, you see unbelievers recognizing the truth of God's revelation. Where you have the Queen of Sheba comes to Solomon because she recognizes that Solomon's wisdom is better than all others. So she recognizes truth. Always, also, the other way, believers can recognize truth among those who do not believe in God. Um, so you have in Proverbs, uh, King Agur and King Lemuel, they do not seem like Jewish names. They don't seem like converted names. Uh, and also in sections of Proverbs, there are sections of uh, Egyptian wisdom and Babylonian wisdom, and it's inserted in. Now, the, um, these Jewish scribes, these people inspired by the Spirit, said, well, this is God's truth. It came from our oppressors, but we can still recognize that it's truth. So unbelievers recognize that there's truth, but um, believers can also see truth that is in unbelievers. This is the doctrine of common grace, that God continues to uphold his order through believers and unbelievers. And this, uh, Calvin would say, is the work of the Spirit. God is constantly sustaining all of life, through believers and unbelievers, by the work of the Spirit. <clears throat> uh, Paul says something similar, saying that the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires. So he recognizes <coughs> that the Gentiles who do not have the Jewish law have it written on their hearts, that God um, has made them in uh, his image, and that this image emerges and shows up they may not know where it comes from or what the whole thing is or discern it all, but it emerges. It emerges. So you see that there's um, not only is there this recognition that the Spirit is at work, but you also see that, that the human image of God is still at work in developing culture in the midst of sin and rebellion. This is also a part of common grace. So when you look at Cain's lineage who's probably the first bad guy, the first villain of the Bible. But his um, uh, in Genesis 4, verses 20 through 22, Jabel, the first tent maker, Jubal, the first musician, Tubal-Cain, first metallurgist. You have this development of culture in spite of sin and human rebellion. Um, Calvin says, We ought not to forget those excellent benefits of the divine spirit, which he distributes to whomever he wills for the common good of mankind. So Calvin is saying that the Spirit gives gifts to all people so that all people will benefit. This is the kindness of God. Yet you also see the Tower of Babel. You know, they're unified in language. They're unified in skill, but they're not unified in truth. And so they're able to, instead of becoming a blessing to the nations, they try to develop a tower that goes up to heaven. Uh, you almost think of the Tower of Babel, which is kind of the origins of Babylon, uh, is that this, this attempt to try to unite heaven and earth through human power. You can think of technology today, modern-day technology. It is this ability for humans to do so much power, but not knowing what its end goals are or what's its source. And when we don't know the source and we don't know the end goals, we can become very confused about its proper use. I often think of um, this as a ship that's sailing in the sea because some people talk about um, unbelievers as, 
as a category of no free agency, that they have no freedom, that they are, they can do no good. But this is not the biblical view, um, as I've tried to mention. And so the metaphor I like to work with is a ship that's sailing on the sea, and it can navigate with lots of force and lots of power and lots of beauty, but it doesn't have a compass. It doesn't know where it's going. Okay? So this is the power of the human in the midst of the fall. Uh, and so personal, with the lack of personal renewal, there's still lots of power being made in the image of God through the work of the Spirit to bring cultural, um, cultural development, but also cultural chaos. Redemption. <clears throat> this is the third and final point of the biblical reflection is that this is the radical fulfillment of God's purposes for creation and for our work. Uh, as one guy said, God has a project. He won't let his fallen creation go. Jesus Christ is the linchpin of the divine plan. So he won't let creation go. So in Jesus, um, in several New Testament books, Jesus is spoken of in relation to the creator. Okay, So he is uh, identified with the creator. Uh, in John 1, 1 John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Revelation 1. It's interesting that so many books begin by pointing to Jesus in association with the Creator. Um, <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You would think that Paul's talking about God. He is, but he's talking about the person of Jesus Christ. In him, all these things hold together. Um, or Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So you have this sense that Jesus um, is very powerful uh, and associated with the Creator. Uh, and not only that, is that, um, that He has the right relationship to creation. Because He's not only the Creator, but He's also the Integrator. All things hold together in Him. So this, this gives us a clue on what it means to be restored in Christ toward creation, cultural renewal. But when we see Jesus in his uh, beginning, his, uh, how the Gospels always begin with his ministry, uh, in Luke 4, verses 18 through 21, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he's saying that, in this moment, it's fulfilled in him. These promises of really cultural renewal. Not only renewal for the Jewish people, but renewal for all nations. This was the great dream. And he's saying, in me, all things become renewed. But Jesus, if you saw that, he's not just saying in him, but he's saying he's, anointed this, he's been anointed by the Spirit to proclaim this. He's anointed by the Spirit to proclaim this cultural renewal. It's the Spirit that's guiding him toward cultural renewal. This is what he's um, here for. 
And so he, he always has this um, alongside forgiveness, alongside conversion. He's also um, restoring people's uh, bodies. He's restoring uh, people marginalized to community, to family. He's, uh, he's bringing about healing and uh, about liberty to captives and to prisoners. So he's bringing social renewal through his work by the Spirit. So much so that uh, the author of Hebrews speaks in Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9. He reinterprets Psalm 8. You remember Psalm 8 was that one that says, uh, humanity is just below God, but above all things, and, and in their care is dominion. Well, the author of Hebrews goes back to Psalm 8 and says, um, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So everything is subject to humanity. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. That means that there is cultural decay or cultural frustration. But we do see Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews is pointing at Jesus as the one who fulfills Psalm 8. He's the one that fulfills the dominion mandate. So Jesus came to restore the original goal of creation. To restore us to faithful human stewardship. Not to take us out of the world, but to restore us to holy stewardship rather than sinful stewardship. So forgiveness um, is alongside healing. And Jesus did this through the power of the Spirit. <clears throat> and in the end, he promises that that same Spirit that is upon him will be the one that he gives to his disciples, to, to those who follow him. So he promises the Holy Spirit. He promises that power, not just the power to heal or to speak in a particular tongue, but that they might be able to be a part of God's purposes in creation, of his cultural renewal. So the reception of the Holy Spirit is not an ecstatic abnormality, but a return to God's purposes for his creation. So that's why Paul speaks about those who are in Christ are as new creations. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. This is not brand new, this is a renewed sense. And then you think of Pentecost, this climactic fulfillment um, where the Spirit um, descends and comes upon these disciples of uh, God's apostles or Jesus' apostles. And it fulfills this um, prophecy from the prophet Zephaniah saying, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Now, what that means is that the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is doing something dramatic, and, he, and, it's, uh, and he's doing something that is of history, that it, the creation, fall, redemption. And Pentecost is that pivotal moment where God is restoring people to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, not just to be anointed on occasions, but to be indwelt by the Spirit so that they might be able to go about doing cultural renewal. Uh, becoming a seismic power among all nations. And so the Spirit gave Jesus' disciples the ability to speak in ways that people from all nations could understand. So you see that it's a, 
It's a redemption of the Tower of Babel. It's a critique of the Tower of Babel, but also um, the right way. And so instead of trying to, to unite heaven and earth by human power, it's that God descends and has people speak that all nations can hear. And they are not to go establish a Christian nation, but they are supposed to go to the ends of the earth. And as they go to the ends of the earth and the power of the Spirit, they start having this, what uh, this one writer, Larry Sarientop, called a moral revolution. It was something unseen in history. Uh, and so you have throughout Acts and the New Testament letters this, this transformation of people's lives and of people's work. Uh, so in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, make it your ambition to work quietly. Uh, part of the work of the Spirit is that your ambition is to work a quiet life. We don't often think of the Spirit in this role of quiet work. Uh, the thief is called to stop stealing, work with their hands in order that they might be generous to those in need. This is a restoration, a personal renewal of someone who's a thief, probably in need, and says, stop stealing. Uh, start working with your hands so that you might be generous to those who are poor, to those who are like you. This personal renewal leads to cultural renewal. Uh, the slave is to serve their master well as if they're in service to Christ. So this is not a revolt or a revolution, but one that is, a, uh, is it's the transformation from below that God is at work to transform society through the work of the Spirit. People are not called out of their jobs. They're called to remain in their jobs. Zacchaeus is not supposed to stop collecting taxes. He's supposed to do it in a holy way. <clears throat> and so it's in a way a humble spiritual battle it's a humble spiritual battle they're even called they're not called to pick up swords but to honor the emperor unless the emperor calls them to act in a way that is against the one and only God and so the spirit is at work through the indwelling of the people of God for um, the purposes of restoring creation through cultural renewal. Uh, this isn't absent of human creativity, but just as um, the, the Spirit anointed uh, Bezalel, is that the, the Spirit indwells us so that our creativity, that, that imageness, might come to bear on what God is doing in His creation, that we become participants, voluntary participants in what God is accomplishing in creation. This is the work of the Spirit. And in the end, uh, from the garden, finally to the garden city, it says that that human development, that human creativity, it says that the wealth of the nations in Revelation 21, that the wealth of the nations or the wealth of the kings will be brought into the kingdom of God, will be brought into the new Jerusalem. Now pause and think about that, that human cultural creativity will be affirmed and brought into the kingdom of God. So God desires to, to have humans participate in what he's created so that it might be brought before him because this is what he's designed it for. Okay, so that was a whirlwind through uh, biblical reflection. So what does this mean for us and for our work? 
first, it means that work is not tolerated as a part of the Christian life. It is to be celebrated. Jesus died for our work. Jesus died so that we might work. Um, it's a part of our personal renewal, but our personal renewal is to orient us to God's good purposes in creation. Um, and this is the work of the Spirit. Personal renewal leads to cultural renewal. God's purposes are achieved in part through our work, through the labor of our hands. God accomplishes his purposes through us. So work is not to be tolerated, but something to be affirmed and celebrated. If you're washing dishes, don't curse. Be thankful. You are participating in God's good purposes. The work of our hands is a key part to living the life by the Spirit, a spiritual life. And so this is why Martin Luther referred to work of our hands as a vocation, as a spiritual calling. He emphasized that it wasn't just the clergy who had a priestly calling, but that there was the priesthood of all believers. This was a major and radical um, difference from what the Catholic Church had been seeing. And so, uh, so the Reformation actually created, uh, it's the beginning of you seeing art reflecting the potato peelers. Or if you see a Van Gogh or, um, or you see some of these Renaissance of people working in the fields, that's radical. It's affirming ordinary work as a spiritual calling and not just um, people with golden orbs around them as saints. It was, it was the radical affirmation of ordinary existence as a part of the spiritual life. And so Luther and Calvin had a large part of that, and I'm, and I'm talking about them. So this means uh, for Luther that every person who belongs to Christ is called into his service, to God's service, in whatever one does. So this is a wonderful quote from Luther, <clears throat> quoted by Paul Marshall. If you are a manual laborer, you find that the Bible has been put into your workshop, into your hand, into your heart. It teaches and preaches how you should treat your neighbor. Okay, so it's saying that the Bible has taught you how to live well, um, and it has taught you to love your neighbor. And now he wants to tell you how you are to love your neighbor. Just look at your tools, at your needle and thimble, your beer barrel, your goods, your scales and yardstick or measure, and you will read this statement inscribed on these tools. You have as many preachers as you have transactions, goods, tools, and other equipment in your house and home. So he's saying that your, that your actual work is your way of being able to live out the commands to love God and to love your neighbor. That vocation is a way of God loving others. Now, I mentioned earlier common grace, and that's very much at the forefront of Luther's mind. He believed that God accomplished his purposes through those who did not believe as well as those who are Christians. This is because God accomplishes his loving purposes through the order of vocation. So God is um, being able to show his love for his humanity and love for creation through vocation, through people's work. This is how God wants to show love. So Luther said that we pray in the Lord's Prayer that God would provide our daily bread. And the way God gives us our daily bread is through the vocations of farmers, millers, and bakers. So we pray for our daily bread, and God 
gives us our daily bread through bakers and millers and um, uh, farmers. In our modern economy, writes this one man named Veith, we might add truck drivers, factory workers, bankers, warehouse attendants, and food service workers. These people are at work to bring food, to bring bread to someone's house. This is a part of their work to um, show God's love for one another. Our vocations are opportunities for us to show love to one another. This is how God has designed it. What makes the Christian distinct from the unbeliever is the internal orientation toward God and toward the neighbor. The Holy Spirit leads us to see, to see God at work. Okay? The Holy Spirit leads us to see that God, who we would otherwise be blind to, using our vocations as his normal ways of serving one another in love. He sees our vocations as ways of serving one another in love. Luther considered our vocations, which, extend, which extends beyond our job to include the roles we have in family, um, in our community, as ways of fulfilling the two great commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. As one Lutheran scholar put it, God could save and work without externals in order, but it is his will to limit his power as he works among us. He does this so that, as he works through his created orders of church, home, and government, by his spirit I include, his creatures have opportunity to share in his work. In these three orders, God seeks to govern his world for humankind's good and to reveal in a daily fashion his care toward all humankind. So what he's saying there is that, just like in Adam and Eve, God created all things. He, was, he could do it without Adam and Eve. So why did he put Adam and Eve in the garden? Because it was their opportunity to serve one another in love. God created an order so that Adam and Eve could have opportunities to serve one another in love. And this is, uh, and this is what uh, he sustains us to do. This orientation transforms how we might understand our daily and often toilsome work. So I just want to say, like, how do we think about our work and our toil? We can consider how our work can be transformed as a service to loving one another. So when you're washing the dishes, you think this is an act of loving one another. Because if you had that roommate who never washed dishes, you know that they're not loving you very well, right? Maybe you had that feeling of selfishness and you don't want to wash dishes because you don't want to love the other. You want to love yourself. Uh, but God has given us these vehicles of vocation so that we know we might use these things to love one another. Now, this is different than using work as a vehicle for evangelism. It's not just saying, okay, I want to work and then on the side be able to evangelize. But the work itself is an opportunity, a form in which we may love one another. Uh, you know, when I had my ESL job, <clears throat> I was really disappointed because I wanted to go straight to Labrie. That was my hope. But then when I started teaching English in the classrooms, I started seeing that this was a wonderful opportunity to meet people that I would not otherwise meet, and that I could love them in how I taught and how I prepared. So I worked very hard to be a good teacher, not because it was for, for the money. <laughs> there was not more money. Um, so I could have worked for the minimum level, but I worked hard because for me it was an act of loving my colleagues, an act of loving my students, and loving the work that I do. 
So the work was an opportunity for me to show love to one another. This is how God has designed it by his spirit. But Luther also says that if our work does not lead us to love an, our neighbor, we'll have to ask if it's good work at all. So there was a guy who um, worked for, I met him, and he told me that he worked for the paparazzi. Uh, basically what he did is he worked for kind of like a YouTube company where he had to make two minute, two minute videos about whatever happened to Brad and Angelina or uh, to, to some kind of scandal. But it was always a collection of paparazzi and he would collect it and he would organize it and he would send it out. And I thought, well, that would be an awful job to have. And he said, no, the benefits are great. And he's like, and every Friday night we get microbrew beer, they bring in sand um, from California and we play volleyball. And it was all about the, the economic benefits but there had no end to love your neighbor. For him, he was like, this, this brings me good income and I have fun doing it. Therefore, it's a good job. But he's not considering the work of the Spirit there. Is it, is it loving God and loving your neighbor? So we have to question if all work is good. <clears throat> you might ask yourself, is my work an expression of love? How might I have my work as an expression of loving God and loving my neighbor? This is the second and last point I have to make. <clears throat> so the first is that we can glorify God within our calling. Within our calling, we are to love God and to love our neighbor. Uh, and But we're not only to glorify God within our calling, which is what Luther would call us to do, but we may also glorify God by our calling, which Calvin would emphasize. Um so rather than just using our vocation as a vehicle in which to have it as a form in which to love one another and to love God, Calvin said actually our vocation is, and Luther intimated this, but not as emphatic or clear as Calvin, is saying that our job is not just, it's not just within our calling, but by our calling. God has created our vocation as a part of his order. Um, our work is a part of his good creation and our work is a part of him bringing good purposes um, about. Uh, so we can do it lovingly or not, but the job itself is a part of God's good purposes, the work that we have. Um, <clears throat> let me quote uh, uh, from Calvin. Human fellowship is realized in relationships which flow from the division of labor. So that sounds very much like Luther. Human relation, fellowships are realized through division of labor. But division of labor is the important part for Calvin. Wherein each person has been called of God to a particular and partial work which complements the work of others. So it's not just a person who's doing a job in relation to a person who's doing a job, but that the work is in relation to the other work. Um... <clears throat> Calvin sees that not only are these uh, opportunities for love and the way that God is, but that the order itself is structured um, like a building. And this building has several compartments. And these compartments, and God is the master architect who has designed it in such a way that this house is a good house. God did not build a bad house and just wanted people to love Within, within the house, if you see what I mean. 
okay, the house is falling apart, but at least we love one another. You know, it's kind of like Bon Jovi, you know, living, living on a prayer. We don't have anything else, but we at least have one another kind of thing. Uh, it's not that. Calvin's like, no, the house itself is good. The house itself, God is the master architect, and he's created reality to have different compartments, different spheres. And so you have the role of business, the role of arts, the role of farming, and so on. <clears throat> so this has two important consequences. One, it means that each compartment or sphere has its own inner laws. Okay, It has its own laws. This gets a little philosophical, but please hear me out. Art should be guided by the laws of art, not by the laws of political propaganda or financial gain. So you can imagine an artist who just is a sellout, right? What does it mean that they sell out? It means that they're not doing art for art's sake anymore. They've abandoned the laws of excellence in art and they're just using it as a vehicle to make money. They've become mercenary. Uh, Calvin would say art needs to be along the laws of art. Uh, politicians should not be compromised by corporations, but should be guided toward their particular calling of the common good. Education should not be confused with political engineering. So what we have is that each sphere is good. Education is good. It's a created good. It's not happenstance. It's a created good. Politics is a created good. Art is a created good. And it has its own inner laws. Okay? This is how Calvin saw it and many people who followed him. <clears throat> and so we need to ask, what is God's design for each field? Now, I can't get into that, but, you, but people ought to discuss, well, what makes art art rather than a business, rather than a political uh, machine or something like that? How can art be for art, business for business, politics for politics? But this does not mean that each sphere stands autonomous. That each, each place of vocation, each place of work stands in the building. In the, uh, it's, God as the master architect has placed each of these spheres, not autonomously, they are on their own laws, but they work interdependently. That they are mutually submissive or they're mutually obliged to one another. So arts can serve politics, and politics can serve business. And when each of them serve their own laws, then it becomes, it becomes a, a harmony of the musical spheres, as it were. Or as one theologian put it, where the political scientist ceases, there the jurist begins. Just as where the moralist stops, the theologian begins. And where the physicist ends, the physician begins. All these arts are united in practice. So saying that each has its role and they serve a different sphere. And that sphere serves a different sphere. And so, we, and so our work is not just loving my work, doing it well is loving you, but it's that my work actually serves your work. This is Calvin's vision. And he's saying that this is the work of the spirit. This is the work of the spirit holding this building together. Um, and so our vocation is a part of God's good order to be fulfilled so that it might be in service of other vocations. So if I'm doing my job well, it will serve you in your job and serve you in your job, not just as persons, but actually in your vocations. 
that I'm, I'm a citizen, I'm a, a responsible citizen in the work that I do. This is how God's designed it, Calvin says. But he says that none of these spheres, which includes the church, cannot mediate between these. So sometimes, and often, our temptation in the modern world is where the state tries to integrate everything. The state is the one that tries to be the great coherer or the great integrator. Or um, in medieval times, the church tried to be the great integrator. And Calvin's like, no, the church or the state, they cannot be the mediator. They cannot be the integrator of all these different spheres. The only way that these spheres can be in right relationship is in Christ. So instead of saying, okay, how am I supposed to do art well? Like, how am I supposed to do art well? Well, maybe the government says you can do this and not this or something like that. Well, then I'm submitting to the government to tell me how to do art. Rather, Calvin is saying that we submit ourselves to Christ. In whatever we do, we submit ourselves to Christ through the Spirit, and that leads us to do art well. It doesn't mean to make religious art, because that would try to find art within the church, the sphere of church. Rather, I'm doing art well in my submission to Christ. And I do church well in my submission to Christ. I do politics well in my submission to Christ. It's Christ who I let integrate it. It's not me or trying to find some human means in which to integrate my work. It's very complicated. I hope you're holding it together. <clears throat> so there's no other mediator or integrator other than Christ. In Christ, uh, all things hold together. And so this is where the Spirit is at work. The Spirit regenerates our hearts in this personal renewal because it moves us to the preeminence of Christ. It calls us to look at Jesus as Lord. And at that moment of restoring us to the Creator in right relationship, then we are in then right relationship to creation. <clears throat> so it is in our loving submission to one another, as with Luther, and our submission to God's design for each sphere, as it is with Calvin, we participate in what God is accomplishing. This is the point. Or as um, Abraham Kuyper put it, an Abraham, um, uh, a Dutch prime minister theologian said, through the obedience of the individual Christian in his own calling, that includes women, um, through all people, through the obedience of the individual Christian in his own calling, regeneration and its fruit is to extend to all areas of culture, thus redeeming civilization from the effects of the fall. In other words, as a person looks to Christ and faithful to Christ, then they will start bringing cultural renewal and start pushing away the effects of the fall. They will bring love to those areas and they bring excellence to these areas. Otherwise, we're trying to accomplish them on our own power. We're trying to establish technology as the Tower of Babel, for instance. So this should keep us from triumphalism or dominionism, this idea that we can um, try to establish the kingdom of God through our own efforts, through our own work, through our own politics. Um, and it's good for us to remember that Pentecost was to bless the nations, not to establish a Christian nation, but to bless all nations through our obedience to Christ. This is how cultural renewal um, and a moral revolution happened in the um, uh, Greco-Roman society. This is how the Reformation did so much powerful good 
um, um, uh, you know, in the 16th, 17th centuries. And so we might want to ask, um, how is our work loving God and loving others? But also, what is my vocation for? How is it in mutual obligation to other vocations? <clears throat> okay, so uh, that's where I end. So the, the, uh, in summary, this idea that, that the spirit is not something that is uh, antithetical to matter, but that the spirit brings is a perfecting cause to the, ma to the material world, that God has his purposes for his creation being developed through culture, and that humans voluntarily participate, and uh, they become oriented to God's purposes through the work of the spirit. So the Spirit's not taking us out of our work, but actually orienting, orientating us to good work. Um, so that's where I'll end. <clears throat> okay. Uh, so let's have a discussion. Uh, yeah, you can turn on the light. It's a little bit dim. Yeah. Yes, uh, we should all just cuddle on the couches here. Um, so yes, um, any reflections or thoughts on this? I feel my thoughts going back and forward once or twice to um, the teachings about the body of Christ, that uh, the church, the body of Christ, is... Uh, comprised of many members, many parts, the, the legs, the feet, the arms, etc. Um, and how each is distinct and how each uh, has this interdependence and this ability to help the others to uh, become even uh, greater in, in what they do. Um, and, I, and that just seemed to, that thought seemed to bounce back once or twice to me in, in what you were saying. So you're saying that uh, that the body of Christ is interdependent members of the body? Well, um, part of what you were saying was individual, but part of it was, was community. Absolutely. Um, and uh, the church is a key community for the Christian believer um, where along with fellows, um, there is a common mind and a common purpose. And um, the, the, or those individuals in, in their work might be thoroughly dissimilar, um, but if they are heading in the same sort of direction, um, then there's a pulling together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it's well said. I mean, the church is, is the location where it's supposed to be a body of people. I mean, the, the church is a body of people looking to Christ so that they might be um, fed out as a body. Um, as uh, as it's, It should be a prophetic yet beneficent power in the world. Um, uh, that, the, that the Spirit unites us as these various vocations, our various gifts. So when 
Paul speaks about Christ dispenses his gifts to the body. Uh, it, it is talking about the structure of how we live life together as a church body, preaching and encouraging and these kind of things. But it's not supposed to be devoid of um, our, our daily labors. Because in some ways, it's uh, the Acts community was one that would share everything together. It, it didn't become a, a communist model. It was a model of diversity where some people had privilege or had access or had abilities and they used those abilities in which to benefit the body uh, and also to benefit the society. But it also meant that the slaves could also have their role. Paul wasn't for slavery, but you know he was also saying that the slave in relationship to the body of Christ was able to serve as a, uh, as a faithful slave so that they might bring witness to Christ and bring renewal. And in fact, it did bring, it did bring a movement toward abolition of slavery um, uh, as, as its end goal. But yeah, I mean, if that's what, if that's what you're aiming at, but the, the Spirit has guided us all together in our different vocations and calling us out. And that's where I think the church should feed us. We shouldn't have... I mean, this is an appropriate place to have a discussion about spirit and the wor and work. But when I, I, I decided to do a, um, a discussion group called Marketplace, which was uh, an imitation of another group or in partnership with another group that's happening in Victoria, but it was uh, an encouragement of thinking Christianly about people's work in whatever work they did. So we had land surveyors, uh, um, a person who made beer equipment, uh, a therapist, uh, you know, an engineer, all these different types of people. And I was helping them think through how they might do work well. But what I discovered is I, I emailed all these churches and all these leaders that had come to know over a year and a half. And I said, you know, you don't have time to preach about engineering and work in your pulpit. Uh, I would love just to help your congregants think Christianly. I'm not a church. I'm just wanting to help you. Uh, it's free. I'm not taking anyone. And no one wrote me back except one person. And it was through word of mouth that it actually built up. So I find it very disappointing sometimes that the church is about itself rather than mobilizing people to do well with whatever they do, mm -hmm. um, to encourage people in the types of work that they do. I got a question. Who was that guy that you mentioned, or uh, when you talked about Christ integrated? You know, art should be art, politics should be politics, and so on and so forth. Who is the person that you referenced? John Calvin. John Calvin. Okay. Yeah, and where Calvinism was seen, I mean, most people think of John Calvin as um, this stodgy doctrinarian who's about predestination you know that there uh, sometimes there's a bit of stodginess that you can see in him but also he's a very colorful Frenchman and he writes poetically when he writes his commentaries and B.B. Uh, Warfield called him the the theologian of the Holy Spirit so most people don't know that John Calvin focused a lot of time on the Holy Spirit uh, 
and on ordinary existence. So he thought, and there would always be cultural renewal where his teachings went. So um, a lot of the success in the Netherlands is due to, I would say, John Calvin. It's probably why it escaped me, because it's almost as if my mind didn't want to accept that I thought it would be like a new new thinker, not, not yeah. No, but you know. Uh, someone uh, developed him named Von Prinster. Prinsterer, I don't know how you say his name, and then Abraham Kuyper developed that, and then Hermann Doerver developed that. And so these are people who developed this idea of sphere sovereignty, and it's it's a very much working idea in the arts, in business, in politics. Well, just an add-on thought to that, like it it really um, resonated with me that part, especially because you see that nowadays. Um, right now particularly with say like the social justice tradition we see that kind of coming out into its own um its own thing like it's the same kind of thing happening where being good for the sake of you know like yeah these things separated from a source i mean as i'm not saying that christians not implying that they have to be christian to be engaged in social justice or good ethics but the, the more it becomes about being seen as good and thought of good, it becomes corrupted. Like, I can see that with almost everything, right? Yeah, I, I'm not exactly following, but I do follow that. Um, that yeah, I mean, if if there's not an understanding of mutual obligation of our pursuits and understanding that we're working according to the laws of these things, but so often we collude or confuse categories, mm-hmm. where education and politics become confused, arts and business become confused. And they actually, and so they, arts and business, it's not bad to have your art sold for a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. And Luther or Calvin would have nothing against that. I mean, the baker makes the bread and they sell it. That's fine. Um, a whole a whole thing of commerce was not something that they were against. But they were saying, do not make art for the sake of selling it. Mm-hmm. Make art for the sake of art and then sell it. Um, if you're able and try to stay away from the temptation see it as as um, okay this is how I make art now how might I make this art uh, uh, where can I where, how can I sell have this as a trade if I should have it as a trade um, yeah so they're they overlap but they should remain distinct why sort of that idea that the spirit is diff, like separate from matter um, why how that kind of became the main idea about it rather than kind of what you're describing like how that kind of originated well a huge influence was the Greek thought oh, okay. uh, so um, where they were trying to find something that unified all things that we see um Plato had this idea of perfect form, this um, and that material reality was the furthest from the pure. Because when we look at material world, we see change. And their understanding of truth and uh, was something of immutability, of something that is unchanging, that is um, that remains unchangeable. So uh, so the forms could not be subject to to the material world because the material world is constantly in decay or in atrophy or in growth. 
And so this idea between, and so emotions were even considered something bad. So the earliest source that I can see, I mean, uh, you always have a source of sin, but where this whole structure of the spirit being good and material being bad, uh, we, it's a great inheritance from the Greek thought, and it reasserted itself in the Enlightenment, um, dividing fact from feeling. Uh, the arts and religion on one side, sciences and mathematics on the other side. Um, and so, I mean, Paul is constantly contending with this Gnostic view. This material is um, is bad. It's decay. It's um, it's only something that we should escape. And the spirit is something that is other than something that is uh, removed from decay. So that's what we've inherited it from, yeah. But Paul was trying to constantly reassert. And I love uh, Gordon Fee as a theologian. Uh, he said, The New Testament does not argue for a creational ethic, but it does argue from a creational ethic. And that's important to notice because if you only read the New Testament and you don't read the Old Testament, then you start only seeing the Spirit as... Um, you can easily substitute the spirit or um, regeneration or Jesus as something that is non-material. Um, but if you see that uh, the New Testament is actually, uh, it's almost an exegesis of the Old Testament in light of Christ and the coming of the spirit. And so it doesn't argue for creational ethic, but it does argue from one. So. Have you ever read that essay... Um uh, by Wendell Berry, um, Christianity and the Survival of Creation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it reminds me of that. It's very Absolutely, similar. Yeah. yeah. Wendell Berry's done a lot of good writing around this topic. Okay, well, we can leave it there. So, thanks, and uh, there's some more tea and cookies and you can hang out as long as you like. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.